0: Well, here we are, the first broadcast of RCR, Reality Check Radio, the latest development in New Zealand media, and I would say, and of course I would say that, a necessary and essential one. And it's me, Paul Brennan, and we're doing this because I'm doing the first show, just turned out that way. But I have with me, in a beautiful podcast studio, somewhere in Christchurch, Uh, we're sitting in Chantel Baker's podcast studio Uh, to do this broadcast. Chantel thank you so much for first of all coming on board but also providing this great environment to have our first broadcast from and our our get together for the first time on air.
1: Thank you. Thank you Paul and it's awesome to meet all of you guys in person. Today's the first day I actually see your beautiful faces.
0: Oh thank you. So with me is
2: Oh Rodney Hyde. Um, Yes Chantel those Broadcasts you did from the protest were fantastic because you just made the people that were there come alive and speak to us, to all of New Zealand. And there was no mainstream media coverage and uh, it was you. And it was so wonderful because there was a connection that you had uh, with the people that came through to me. So thank you for that, you were amazing. Myself, um, I'm loving this. Uh, I'm loving being involved with RCR. It just feels a lot of energy. There's a lot of excited people Um, it's good to be associated with something that's clearly successful with successful people. And um, I'm just so pumped about listening, Hmm. you know, because I talk about intelligent conversation, but the key to intelligent conversation is listening. And it's not talking, it's listening. And I think we've largely lost that art of listening to the other side to other people, to other views,
0: to other ideas. And we have to check ourselves
2: for that too, don't we? Mm, Oh, absolutely, absolutely, because um, you've always got to stop and think, um, am I right? Because I've been wrong about so many things and um, no one has a monopoly on truth.
0: Mm. Mm. Um, Rodney made the point about your, what do you call them, broadcast streams um, from, we know the occasion, and I just wonder how that felt at the time. Whether you realised the the gravity of what you were doing at the time. It's probably a bit of a blur now. Maybe I don't no. know. But because I was there, I was watching. It was the most compelling mm. stuff. You know, it was just incredible. You couldn't get into your day
2: because you had to no. see what was going to happen next. Yeah,
1: it was thrilling. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, it was. It was. I don't know how to describe it. I think because. Every single day, and this was strategic on the police's part, every single day, um, and I know that because we've got a, a guy who's ex-special forces on our team, and I've got a lot of military friends, so they were constantly ringing me and messaging me and telling me kind of what the what was happening and what the what plans were and what the actions would be of the police, that type of thing, but every day they would come in at a different time with a different amount of force doing different things and, and, and different kind of antagonistic things and it was all very purposeful and designed to make people, as, to make the protesters as neurotic as possible and so the longer that it went on the more you kind of saw that play out and every single day you were nervous and on edge and you know um, we had to stay in all these different places between like the camper van which was parked legally in the Law Society building um, to an Airbnb and then we had a room that someone had given us that was we had three of us packed in this tiny little room and we had to run like you know a mile or a couple of miles with all the camera equipment at like 3am to try and get to where the police were and everything would happen so suddenly that I don't know you're just you're keeping people on the journey with you but you're still experiencing it firsthand yourself and so as much as you're trying to talk people through the process you're still a human being experiencing raw dramatic emotion and I think that That raw dramatic emotion is what people felt through the screen and probably what kept people watching and coming back. It's because they were kind of experiencing, almost experiencing it firsthand as well. It
0: sort of felt like, I remember looking at um, your viewing stats, you know, in real time and, and feeling curious uh, about what the mainstream media were doing on that. And I went to, I, I won't say which one, but I went to one of the sites and had them both on at the same time. You had 20,000 people watching, and the other mainstream had 223. Wow.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, we got an OIA back the other day, and for people who don't know, it's um, an Official Information Act request, so we do a number of them here where we're trying to dig information out of the government, and we got one back, and it was a report that I think the Disinformation Project had given the government um, a month or a couple of months after the protest, I think, if I'm remembering this um, appropriately. And... It said that we that the live streams that we had in the in the reach of our content for a number of months was three times what the official COVID nineteen website was getting. So I'm not surprised that they didn't want us to stay up. tell,
2: tell me because. This is all strange to me. What's a disinformation project? I've heard of it and it seems a peculiar Mm. thing. What is a disinformation project? Uh,
1: It's a group of individuals that were pulled together under the Auckland University bracket. Um, So a lady called Kate, a guy called Sanjana, a couple of people. Now their ideology is Marxist. So Marxist socialist. Kate identifies as a um, fourth wave, I believe a fourth wave feminist. So radical, very radical ideas and these people have been put in charge of basically judging what speech should and shouldn't be allowed on the internet. Um, So they decided that we were, well I was not allowed a voice on the internet is what they decided uh, which is ironic because Sanjana who's part of the disinformation project actually started as a citizen journalist using social media in Sri Lanka to speak out against what he disapproved of with his government. So you've got a group of people that are relatively radical. That's my perception of Marxism anyway. I do find it more of a radical ideology. So they have have certain ideas that they want to implement here in New Zealand and they're given a very large platform across TV, national media, to have that voice.
2: So so you you see, oh, this is disinformation, this is disinformation. How do they determine... What is that disinformation? (laughs) No, seriously, is it like oh well, Karl Marx would never have said that?
1: I think I think so because I went to see one of them speak, and I sat front row at the event because I did not want to hide. You know, I wasn't trying to get away with anything. I sat front row at the event, and I waited for the whole speech. And at the end, uh, they did a Q and A, and I said, "I said, look, my name's Chantal Baker. You've said that what I say is disinformation, but you've also said that I'm pro the Kremlin, which is absolutely false. So pro the what? Pro the Kremlin." Yeah, I know. I well, Let's just slide past that one because I don't even know how, how to, they, to address how everything they come in that. To that? How
0: did they come to that?
1: <laughs> oh, because, I, because I, talked about, um, I talked about a very real situation where the Ukrainian embassy had changed a number of PDFs on their website that were pertaining to how some of their biolabs were funded. Right. So they had updated them and I spoke about that, which is a real situation that did happen and apparently that made me pro the Kremlin. So moving on. So I asked, just because there's too much to unpack in that one. <laughs> so I asked, I asked Kate, front, you know, face to face, I said, how do you classify disinformation? Because what you've said about me would be classified in my eyes as disinformation and she would not answer. She wouldn't answer the question. Um, she repeatedly blew it off and then other people asked some questions including like how can I be an activist against people like Chantel. So she was happy to answer that, but she couldn't answer what disinformation so is. So
2: disinformation is a bad thing.
1: Oh, yes. This yeah, project,
2: the, these Marxist feminists, whatever, they'll decide what is disinformation.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then what is relate the relationship back to government? And what, it mean, what happens if I do disinformation inadvertently?
1: Well, that's a very good question. I mean, they've you're
2: very naughty boy. <laughs> <laughs> we put in the naughty so corner.
1: we got OIAs back that showed that during that time period she was funded by the government, even though I asked her that question and she said no, she's mainly funded by her husband. They were She was funded directly from the Prime Minister's office, so she was funded directly from Jacinda to go on live television and say, you know, the protesters are full of disinformation, even though she never said one thing that I said that was disinformation. So it's quite like this network of people.
2: Oh, wow. So she's funded by the government yeah. and she's sitting there saying this is disinformation because they're not agreeing with the government. Yeah. Nothing
0: to see there. Nothing. <laughs> when was the last time, well, I know you've been on Radio Peter um, recently, but the last gig you had, take us back to that.
3: Uh, that was late late August, early September of 20, if we're 23 now, it 2021. Right. So I was working for the MediaWorks organisation Uh, on a radio station called Magic Talk, and I had the 9 to 12 morning talkback slot. And I'd been doing that uh, since I finished in television uh, at the end of 2018, so I'd been there, what, two and three-quarter years. Uh, It was, to be perfectly honest, Paul, as somebody who's worked a long time in radio yourself, you will know that talk radio is... A very, very tough gig. Reading the news on TV is frankly <laughs> a piece of cake. It's the easiest job I ever had in broadcasting and I'm prepared to say that to anybody because it is and it was. Uh, that you, know, you have a team of producers to give you everything when you do the news on TV. When you're on radio, you've got a three-hour blank canvas every morning and you have to fill it and you have to hope that people ring you up to have conversations. Otherwise, you've just got to talk and talk and talk. And sometimes people did not ring you up. So you had to talk and talk and talk. So it was tough going. Uh, but I, I picked up something early on, and I don't know what set off the spark in my brain about the, the concept of uh, vaccination mandates. Uh, that, to me, just went against the grain of what I thought as an individual, because I'm a believer in... Freedom of association, freedom of speech, of um, of democracy, of having. I mean, I, I believe that you should. You know best how to spend the money you make. The government, this government, decides has decided that it knows better. Uh, I'm also a great believer in the socialising of an education system and the socialising of a health system. I don't have a problem with either of those concepts, as long as those education and health systems are efficient and run well. And in this country at the moment, they're not. Anyway, getting back to where I was with uh, with MediaWorks with Magic Talk, I uh, espouse some some arguments, uh, some theories. About the efficacy of uh, the vaccine, about whether or not it worked, about whether or not it had had long enough to be tested, uh, and the answer of course, is that it hadn 't been it was and we 're finding this out now from some eminently qualified scientists and epidemiologists that it wasn 't tested properly, and that Pfizer themselves uh, have subsequently said that they never tested to see whether it stopped transmission, so my concerns about the vaccine mandates were well-founded. But apparently that was not allowed to be said by the radio station. Uh, and as a consequence, I was told to stop espousing that particular line. How did they do that? I mean- well, they, they said to me, uh, your program has become known as uh, anti-vax central. I said, really, like a railway mm. station. Wow. Yeah. So I, I said, well, isn't it good that there is at least one space in the airwaves where these particular things can be talked about? you know, after all, we are a free liberal society, are we not? A democratic society where freedom of speech is allowed. And the line that I this is the line that tipped me over the edge. Uh, they said, well, there will be financial implications for the company and for the station if you don't change your thinking. And I thought, well, mm, there's only one thing to go here, uh, only one thing to do here. So I quit the next day. I had a a ponder on that particular uh, comment and I resigned the next day. Uh, I, I called up the boss on a Thursday and he was a bit shocked. He said, we'll get back to you on the Saturday. And I said, this was very early September of t- 2021. And I said, look, I'm prepared to, I'll, I'll give you some notice, I'm prepared to work out the month. I'm even prepared to work out the end of the year, but I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not, you know, going to be here long-term, I should tell you that now. And we had a conversation again on Saturday and it was a case of, um, you can go now. I said, fine, thank you. Mm. Big weight off my shoulders, just like that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I finished on the Friday fully expecting to be back on air on the Monday. But uh, it wasn't to be, and that's okay. I just walked away. I yeah. had a, another project in my life. Uh, we were building a house in Wanaka at the time, so I just flew to Wanaka the next week, and I've been in the South Island ever since. <laughs> well, welcome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tell me, Peter, the um, financial implications.
2: Mm. Um, did you take, well, did you take
3: take that to mean
2: advertising? Oh, totally, or gov- Yeah. Totally. Or government money? Uh,
3: well. Was MediaWorks getting a cut of the PIJF, the Public Interest Journalism Fund? I suppose it was. And they'd be getting government advertising by yeah, the way. Government, 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 advertising. government advertising, COVID advertising. That was, that was the key to it. And, of course, in early 2022, uh, Simeon Brown, who I think is a great little ferret and workhorse uh, for the opposition, came up with this extraordinary figure that the government in the financial year had spent $125,000, uh, 125000000 million in advertising on the new zealand Whoa. media and the next biggest advertiser that i could find out going back in in previous years uh the the biggest advertiser in new zealand is traditionally an outfit like harvey norman or toyota and they spend around about 70 to 75 million dollars a year so here was in that year of of 20 21 22 the New Zealand government spending $125 million in advertising, the vast bulk of which would have been, you know, COVID-19 advertising, get the vaccine, uh, do the test, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And and
2: that's the the interesting thing that you realise when you get involved in the modern media, is that the censorship isn't the censorship that you think it is. It's extraordinarily subtle.
3: Yes, but there once upon a time there was... Uh, a thing called, well, they have it in the finance industry too, don't they, the Chinese Walls. Yeah. The, the, the Chinese Wall in, in in finance is that those guys selling the shares yes. are not punting the shares that the investment bank yes. is trying to, to, to yeah. not punting the shares of the company that the investment bank yeah. is trying to float. So there's a Chinese Wall between the brokers and the bankers. Yeah. Uh, in, in the media, there is supposed to be a Chinese Wall between those in the newsroom and those in the advertising department mm. or those in the uh, the editorial, the, the, the production editorial department and those in advertising. You know, never the twain shall meet. They come together for an on-air product whereby there is programme and there is advertising. Uh, in commercial radio, as Paul well knows, yes, there is quite often a blurring of the lines, but never, in my experience before, had there ever been a blurring of the lines to the stage where the advertiser, and even worse is the advertiser was the government here, the advertiser was actually dictating terms about what was being said and discussed on the air. And that, to me, was just a point of no return. I was fortunate in that I was, at the time, 67 years old. I was past retirement age. I'd worked in the industry for Best part of fifty years, forty nine years. So, and I was financially secure, so I didn't need to work. But just so, so, so I, I got out because it was a point of principle. I was, I was um, happy to keep on working, but didn't need to. Therefore, I was not going to put up with. I was not going to put up with that crap. Imagine, so I walked.
2: Imagine if you're a twenty year old. Oh, precisely, precisely. And I yeah. noticed that with my yeah. little kids, even yeah. in primary school, that they're already learning not to express what they think. Mm. Um, yeah. and not to question certain things mm. and basically to buy in to what the government says. Mm. And it's this terrible thing of, like, everyone pretending in a series of lies because I don't even think the teachers believe it. Well, yeah. Well, you
3: see, I, I, I don't... I, 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 I don't have any direct involvement with the education system because my children are adults and because... I don't see what my grandchildren in New Zealand are educated or how they're educated on a day-to-day basis.
2: Well, that's part but, of it too. Yeah, I know, but but what <laughs> you I, kept out
3: of it. What what I am um, what I am beginning to to feel and to understand from listening, talking, reading, is that we don't have an education system as such anymore. We have an indoctrination mm-hmm. system, mm-hmm. and and uh, I just think that is that is just terrible. I mean, Rodney, you told me that you've got kids at primary school age, and they don't teach them to read and write and count anymore. I mean, what the no, hell is going on?
2: You don't get taught the Times Table, but you get a lot about climate change, a lot about...
3: But how can they possibly understand one and a half degrees of, uh, of, of global warming if, they, if they don't <laughs> have numeracy skills, Rodney? Oh, no, 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 no. You see, you've
2: got to get your morals right. You see, you, you, you're you thinking that there's a real world out there. What you're saying is you've got to get your, your morals right, your ethic, you've got to care for the planet and be kind. That's enough. And being kind and care. You're going to be kind and, and care, otherwise we will bully you and subject you to... I mean, that's one of the... There's so much hypocrisy around all of this because, you know, you have to go along and wave a pride flag or do that, and if you don't, you'll be bullied. And the kids say, "But isn't this about anti-bullying?" You know, um, <laughs> Don't and then the hard
0: question. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And if you say, uh, "Oh, we're really into diversity," and you say, "Yeah, well, I've got this," in- no, 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 you can't ask that question.
3: Um, well, it's like inclusivity—the whole Israel Faloua scenario, yes. you whatever know, that was. Twenty nineteen, rugby league says, "Oh, we're a very inclusive sport." Or was it what game was he playing at the time? He switched around a bit. I, was it rugby union? I rugby. think he, rugby union. He was with uh, our our friend Raylene Castle, wasn't he? She was the one who fired him. Uh, Raylene Castle said rugby Australia is a very Mm. inclusive sport, except it doesn't want to include anybody who has Christian conservative beliefs. Mm. So how can you be inclusive when you're excluding Israel out I mean, that to me well, is just bizarre. Oh, you, you, you just. Or am being, I too logical?
2: No, you're an old <laughs> white dinosaur, and will be the world will be a better place when your generation has died out. Because yeah. what I've learned is that you know I can go along to the local public library, dress up as a woman, you know, and um, is this a confession. No, <laughs> I could do, and read to little kids, right and dance provocatively, but imagine if I went along and read them Christian teachings. Mm.
3: Do you think I'd be allowed to do that? Or went along uh, wearing a Captain Cook uniform.
2: Oh, God, yeah. Mm. Um, With the, Captain Cook one, the Captain Cook one is particularly upsetting to me because he was just such an amazing man, such an amazing man, and now we're funding and teaching the kids That he was despicable, that he was evil, that he visited all this oppression and colonialism on on the world.
1: And then they talk about colonialism as if that's the only terrible thing that's ever happened in New Zealand. And yes, there were awful things that were committed during colonisation, but there have also been horrific things committed throughout tribes throughout the world for hundreds and thousands. Aren't
0: some things, though, best left unsaid after a certain Period, because you can go down into but a the, 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 vortex. Of course, of, this. of course. Oh, they did this, you did the that. The Romans that. did that. But Who did the worst thing? No, oh, you did the worst thing.
2: Isn't this an extraordinary conceit that you can look back on history and fix it? Well, or mm, put it right? Good luck with that. I mean, good mm. luck with, And I mean, the reality is, no one here now was there then.
3: No, but the history we of the world, Rodney, I know. Is, is about invasion and about well we use the word colonization it's about basically taking over yeah. the country I mean how did how did modern-day Britain come to be it was because the Normans invaded them yes. so so do do people in Britain you know the the anglo-saxons do they do they want to get reparations from the French because the Normans invaded them in 1066 no, I mean is- that's 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 the ludicrous uh, nonsense that you could you could discuss. If we're going to look at modern-day New Zealand his- yeah. historical discussions. And you see,
2: yeah. we, we... Well, this is part of this terrible thing of identity, isn't it? Mm. That not only are you pigeonholed because of something you have no control over, you know, you happen to be a white European extraction male, and then you're pigeonholed, but more particularly... You would say that because you're white male. You don't have any agency. You don't have any free will. You don't have any ability to think or discuss. And God, then you shut up. Yeah. And then you have this sort of hierarchy of identity. And we know right at the bottom is Peter. Right? <laughs> I'm slightly above Peter, you know, because I've got some disabilities. Have you? Yeah. I'm bald. Yeah, um, no, all right, yeah. You said that I could never be a successful politician for
0: as long as I bought. So, no, no, but you go up, don't you? And then
2: you get, you know, and, and it's and well, that's no, actually, what my
0: kids. It's the other way around, isn't it? As you go fa- as far down as you can to the absolute singular victim. Yes. What is that? Who is that? What is that? And I mean, where does it stop? It doesn't.
1: But the sad thing is, they're creating this victimhood status that people that are real victims often don't want to have people that I know that are disabled don't want to be treated no. called disabled they don't want to be treated like that they want to be treated like normal human beings that are functional and capable because they are they actually want to be to be treated equally and I think we've taken equal and we've turned it into equality and now we're trying to balance out any perceived nuances we're that we have in a victimhood victim status Weaponized, absolutely but my, my favorite line about everything is well well not about everything but just about that particular topic we we're talking about before is every single genetic line that currently exists in New Zealand immigrated here yeah.
2: Of course. But how about (laughs) historical fact? Yeah. Historical fact. We all came out of Africa. Mm. Isn't it wonderful, though, that you can live in an age where you can be a prince, right, and a Hollywood actress, and at the same time be victims? I mean, I'm that,
0: that is genius,
2: ex- genius, right? <laughs> How do
0: you, poor? <laughs> How do you put that together?
2: Uh, yeah. They just don't you're want to be seen.
1: There,
2: <laughs> you're sitting there working away, trying to make a dollar, put food on the table, pay the rent, pay the gas bill, and there's poor Harry. Oh, I've had a terrible But the life. thing is, <laughs> if, if people didn't
0: buy into it, it wouldn't be there. Mm. Just flicking back to what you were saying, Peter, and the advertising. Mm. I, I interviewed a, a woman uh, recently. I uh, forget her name. Wish I could remember her name. She did a very good piece. All that COVID money that budget for health related to COVID normally spent by the health ministry was all controlled by the department of the prime minister. Mm. Yep. All it that was. money. It was. Yeah. So yeah. That, and, and there was only one person ultimately responsible for that department calling mm. the shots. So that's why, that's why that phone call would have come from a long way up.
3: Well... That may you, be you a conspiracy say. theory. You might be down a no. rabbit hole, Paul. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I've never been in a rabbit hole. <laughs> I've,
2: <laughs> I've never been in a rabbit hole, didn't
3: I didn't yeah. know. Uh, around uh, your part of the country. Yeah, I know yeah. that, there are many of them. Yeah, that's right. I I just didn't think of it like that. I, mm. I, and I didn't really want to know. I don't really want to know no, now. No, but it's I mean, just I mean, a if, fun fact. If, if, it, if it did, if, it, if, if that was the case then that's even more despicable and I feel even better. Well, that's by how I got
0: into the newsroom. That's yeah. that's the point I'm making. That's yeah. why
3: that Chinese wall was
0: busted through. Yeah, I And and the, and the
2: fascinating thing is, once you're through the pandemic, that hasn't ended. No.
0: Mm. All that, the settings are there.
2: All the settings are there. All the control is there. All the expectation is there. Mm. And so all around New Zealand newsrooms are having a watchful eye. And, I mean, how extraordinary is it that you'd be on a radio worried what the Prime Minister's office might think. Well, I wasn't thinking that, but what... No, no, but my point is, you know the station was, and uh, uh, historically, you know, if you're upsetting the Prime Minister's office,
3: you're doing your job. Yeah, that's right. Well, what I did notice, and I, like I say, I did that job for two and three quarter years, despite numerous requests, even during the 2020 election campaign, the Prime Minister not once, not once, would appear on that radio show
0: didn't someone else spit the dummy as well said they wouldn't come back on was that with you
3: no that was that was the deputy grant robertson yeah 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 uh, because i asked him a question about what do you know about the great reset and and i i don't necessarily know what the great reset really means except i know that there is uh, a book and various videos produced by the world economic forum called the great reset uh What's One the saying, saying go? You will, you will have nothing, but you will be happy, or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> no I, I asked, and Grant Robertson was about to address, uh, address the Society of Accountants. I think in a few days after we did this particular interview. And I think the topic for the, um, the the speech was something like you know the the reset or the great reset. The word reset was certainly used in the, the in the theme. But but he accused me of conspiracy theories, and and he's you know, that was on air. And then later that day, we just got an email from his office saying. Grant doesn't want to come on the radio show to waste time shooting down conspiracy theories. End of story. That was that.
0: He but was the guy who said Build Back Better, though, early on, didn't he? Because oh. I've heard a few he, of them that. He, he may that. well have, yeah. And yeah. I think our, our current Prime Minister only mentioned that line the other day. So, just saying. Well, but Jacinda
1: was sent a copy of the, of the Great Reset book, signed by him. We found it in an OIA. Signed <laughs> so she's by,
3: by Schwab. Yeah, by signed by Klaus
1: Schwab. Schwab. So she received the book. It was signed by him. She thanked him for sending her the book. So this isn't. I mean, this is just common. Yeah, but
2: you see that? It's not a rabbit hole. That, it's, in,
1: it's in an OIA. Cre- uh, <laughs> it's like oh, that that so Christian painful. That
2: would be disinformation, right? Oh yeah, it's disinformation. Very,
1: yeah. But what about
2: Paul Maureen Pugh, MP? Mm. So as Paul Maureen Pugh, MP says, um, oh about you know, and she said about cyclone the recent cyclone. She said well. Uh, I'd just like to see the evidence from the Minister that this was caused by climate climate change. change. Mm. Well, that's a very reasonable question.
0: Well, fancy being able to claim that that just off the top of your head, that (laughs) that there's some connection here. (laughs) Now, who was it who claimed (laughs) that, whoever it was? Everyone.
1: Honestly, everybody. Where did you get
0: that from? And now we know about NIWA. Yeah. Um, Data not there. Uh, Anyway, sorry, Karen. But, I mean... uh, That's a fairly innocuous question, right? To which
2: you'd say, well, I don't know the answer to that. I'll go and ask, you know, officials, or uh, here it is, have a look at it. She got shot down for it. Here's the amazing thing to me. She got shot down for that, not from the government, but from her own party leader. Now, that question that she asked, she would have been speaking for a great bulk of New Zealanders with that question, And, and... she well, may you, not you, even...
0: You've she, been a politician. Explain it. Explain what? Well, why would she fold and and, and get on her knees and and apologise and... Oh, because... And lose n- dignity. Mm. Because
2: there's nothing more bullying than a party leader uh, when you're sitting on the list. Mm. So they would have said, get into line or you're gone. And... Political parties—they are machines for knocking into shape wayward MPs. They're extremely good at it, and um, so you know, wouldn't it have been Mr. Luxon that'd give her the talking to. Her? It'd be another
0: MP or but maybe who would it stuff. have come from? Who would have said, "Hey, hey, wait on? Did you hear what she said? Do something about it." I mean, where does that come from?
2: No, that come from him.
0: Huh. So he's saying, "I'm
2: saying this. We're we we're, we're going to." agree with the government on this and of course as soon as you have got the opposition agreeing with the government you can't even ask questions about this mm. and then you disenfranchise every new zealander who has a question about it and i mean that question of the great reset that that was a question that lots of new zealanders had it mightn't even be peter's view but he as a talkback host is a person with a microphone and an audience, he was could be asking that question on behalf of his audience. But a politician now doesn't believe, if they don't want to answer a question, they'll just dismiss you and actually dismiss that big chunk of your audience.
3: And if they don't want to appear on a show anymore, as Ardern did not after a while with, with Hosking, uh, because she obviously found the questions too hard, she yes. just... Didn't front. I mean, it was the most extraordinary act of political cowardice mm. that I've ever known in this country. Why would the Prime Minister not appear on a breakfast radio show because the questions were too difficult? I mean, frankly, it, it, it really came as no surprise that she pulled the pin and walked away when she did, even the, if she was fired the, by her own colleagues. A lot of people, because there were comments yeah. about that, were, good on you, go girl. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was like... Yeah. You know, they what, sort of thought it was not have to put up with this crap because, yeah. you see... It you was know. a smart move. He yeah, was yeah.
2: asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> but here, here's the thing about the, what would you say, the um, supine nature of journalists now. Ordinarily, you'd expect other journalists to write critical commentary and articles about a prime minister refusing to front up.
3: Mm. But only one... One journalist did, and that was uh, Barry Soper, who was the political editor for The Station concerned. So he would be duty-bound, well, apart from the fact that he thought that personally anyway, uh, but he would like to toe the company line. Safe space. And and say that she was a coward, and she was. And frankly, I can't see how anybody can reach any other conclusion.
2: No. But, I mean, if you're Prime Minister or you're a politician... You're answerable to the people of New Zealand. Yeah. Someone with a microphone has got an audience. Um, You would expect them to take questions. And if a question is out of line... Don't you sign up for that? Yes. And if the question is out of line, you play the game with the audience. And you can say, listen, Mr. Hosking, I'm not going Mm. there. Mm. And the audience can judge, right? And you've seen many, many politicians get into an argument with a journalist and you're sitting at home uh, with your dinner on your lap. Great entertainment. And you're making a judgment too. But to not turn up, unspeakable. Uh,
0: Chantelle, I want to ask you about journalism because you, I think, had a really unique kind of insight into into what you were doing. Um, I I don't know if you call yourself a journalist. I think you're probably an honorary one (laughs) from what you've done. You had mainstream media there um, all the time you were there and you were there doing your thing. Tell us your thoughts on journalism.
1: I mean, I, I don't call myself a journalist because I don't, um, I, just, I don't call myself that. I don't think that what my work necessarily is is journalism as such. I think I do more reporting and then social and political commentary. That's more where I see myself. Other people have called me a citizen journalist and things like that, but that's kind of up to every person, I think, to kind of discern how they view the content and view what we put out. But... we've all been incredibly disappointed, I would say, by the legacy media here in New Zealand and how much money they have taken from the taxpayers and how much trust we have put in them and then to see the outcome over the last few years. And basic questions were never asked. They openly ridiculed people. And so I think that it's really, uh, it it shook my faith years ago when I saw my dad was running for politics, Leighton Baker, and I would see the interviews that they would do with him in real life and then what they would play and they were two completely different things. And so I started to understand what the media was capable of from seeing that. And then obviously I've seen it with uh, firsthand for myself now as well. So it's it's sad seeing where journalism has got to. I mean, I've had a phone call from a journalist recently um, and I don't I don't answer anymore because I know what they want. They're wanting a tiny soundbite from me and they're wanting, they've already got their story. They've got everything that they want to write about me and they want me to just pick up their phone call so they can tick a box and say, yes, we spoke to it. Uh, and they're going through... Every single person that I may have interacted with on Facebook and ringing them and asking them for dirt, even if they've told them repeatedly, they've only met me once. (laughs) So, I mean, if that's the state of journalism in our country, but they can't look at how Pfizer's funded, or they can't look at the process of getting this approval through the FDA, then... What is the point? Why are we paying hundreds of millions of dollars to these organisations? I'm still struggling to understand that, but I think it comes down to they are happy to put forward propaganda and they're happy to put it forward en masse as long as the money is coming in and to sustain the amount of staff that they've got.
0: You just reminded me the coverage of the story of the WhatsApp messages leak.
1: Oh, Matt Hancock?
0: Yeah, mm. the woman who, who um, broke that story and to the Telegraph, as it turned out. I've been watching a few interviews with her, particularly with the... Um, the woman who got into trouble with uh, Jordan Peterson, Kathy Newman, and 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 a few others. One thing I've noticed, and, and you saying that has kind of reminded me of this, is they didn't seem to be interested in the actual story, mm. which is an incredible story. Incredible I mean, it's story. mind-blowing mm. story and scary. What seemed to occupy them more was the way she released it mm. and why she chose the Telegraph mm. and why didn't she talk to that journalist or this journalist Mm-hmm. And it was all about that and completely avoided the story. And I'm thinking, is there something wrong with you, or is that purposeful? Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that like a, a kind of playbook strategy? Oh, I think what it's would compl- you make of that?
1: It's completely purposeful. They're attacking her. They're not actually attacking the issue. The issue is that it shows clear corruption within the system of the United K- the United Kingdom's government at the time and how they chose to approach COVID. That's actually the issue is the corruption and the deep levels of corruption and how they put forward their COVID policy. But what they choose to do is to attack her and to try and break down her character and disempower her as a human being essentially um, in a virtual sense to the, to the masses so that they distrust her. Because what they want to Make sure we do is distrust anybody that comes forward with something negative about the government, particularly if the government was the one that would implement, if it was the government that was implementing the COVID policy. And so that's very clearly what is happening to her. And it shocks me that no New Zealand media have picked up on that story about the Telegraph. I think there was one piece in I think it was um, there was one piece in one newspaper, but it came because they they basically buy stories and they automatically get pulled and put so onto they didn't their website. Realize. Yeah, I don't know if they realize. <laughs> hey, don't go. <laughs> But every other, every other news station is dead silent and that tells you so much about the, the level of um, – I, I think it's just people are desperate for money. These news organisations are desperate for money locally here in New Zealand. You don't have enough subscribers. Yeah, what
0: condition are they in, do you think?
1: Uh, economically. Economically without the government. Dire with the government. I mean, they just hired hundreds more new journalists in the last two years, so they're sitting happy at the moment.
3: Yeah, it's interesting what you say about that. Uh, let's look at the major media organisations in New Zealand. TVNZ, in the last financial year, made a decent profit. This past mm. financial year, their, their most recent result was they were pretty marginal. Radio New Zealand, non-commercial, so they... It doesn't matter whether they have a profit or a loss if they have a loss the government just tops them up mm. and after the failed merger they're going to get more money anyway to the other organizations nzme well it's a stock market listed company it has to report a profit it makes a reasonable turnover a reasonable profit i think somewhere off the top of my head in the 20 mm. 20 million or whatever in that um in that ballpark maybe on on revenue of about uh, i mean i'm, I'm just Again, mm-hmm. making this stuff up, uh, not making this stuff up, trying to recall it, because I have, I have read it. Mm-hmm. But I think their revenue is around about $300 million. Uh, MediaWorks made a loss. Uh, and Stuff, well, Stuff is owned by the editor, the managing editor. Mm-hmm. And they're a privately held company, so they don't report. But one uh, imagines... everything's things are a bit tight, i
1: that, yeah. <laughs> and, you, and you have yeah, to think yeah. about how much, the, yeah. how much the margins over the last few years have been propped up by COVID advertising as well. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's the big question. It's you've got government grants which are helping, but you've also got the just absolute um, huge amount of advertising that has been pumped into those organisations that normally would not be there.
3: And full mm. retail. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm.
0: Well, bought for a dollar.
3: Oh, stuff so, stuff was yeah. bought for a dollar. Right. Yeah, yeah. that's the prob- right. Yeah, They're probably pleased to get rid of it for a dollar. But,
1: but I think I think deeper than that, these jur- the journalists truly believe the same as as same as labour, same as a lot of um, different government employees that their view is the only one that should be tolerated. That's what they genuinely believe. Yeah. I don't think it's some nefarious reason. I don't think they're purposefully necessarily trying to mislead people. I think that they just genuinely believe but, but that their way is the only have, way.
3: Do we have bona fide journalism telling both sides of the story anymore or do we have activism uh, disguised as journalism or journalism Mm. disguised as activism because when I look at a lot of the copy these days that's what I see and I think it it really comes back to the education the training of of journalists Uh, until gosh until early the early 1990s Mm, journalists Learned on the job. They left school and they became cadets at newspapers and off they went and did the the copy running jobs, did, uh, did basically report. the, yeah, that they went and got the minor stuff, got, you know, came up with facts for the senior reporters. They learned from the old grunts in the newsroom about how to do it. They learnt on the job. Then uh, along came the need for competitive education so, therefore, the universities and the tertiary education started pitching against each other for students. It was about bums on seats. So mm. let's come up with a journalism course. And up until then, there'd, there'd hardly been a journalism course in the country. People, I think there was a polytech yeah, course. Well, there was a polytech course somewhere in Wellington, mm. uh, which was run by Wellington Polytech, one now year. part of Massey University, one year. Uh, there was a postgrad thing at Canterbury University, but that was about it. Then they just exploded everywhere. You could do... Journalism and broadcasting courses anywhere in the country. Sometimes at quite expensive, with, with well, quite expensive fees attached. Yeah, big and, loans. And, and and out of those courses, came students who were not taught uh, about balance and about well, they certainly weren't taught too much about how to construct stories. Uh, Hmm. in terms of um, good grammar, good writing, good spelling, and all that kind of thing, uh, from what I saw, some of the graduates that came into the newsroom at uh, TVNZ. So again, I come back to the education system, and it's, it's, it's like the education we're now having in primary schools, which is more and more indoctrination, and it was a case of, Those journalism schools also having indoctrination uh, being part and parcel of the way things were done. I think Uh, there's
0: something around, sorry, uh, the fees that you mentioned. Because, I mean, you know, business is business. People have got to feel that they're getting value for the money Mm. that they're Mm. putting up. And uh, us knowing, because we've seen it before the earlier era, what was involved in in, in moving into journalism, becoming a journalist – Uh, You know, it it wasn't that expensive. You're not going to have a huge loan over your head. You've got to sell that value of that loan. And, you know, the the day-to-day stuff is not that pretty or romantic. But if you're being told that you can save the world with this qualification, this is the best money you'll ever spend. And it's cynical because it's only business. They want the bums, like you said, the bums on seats. And, you know, I don't know what the latest rate is for a degree in journalism as a student loan, but I'm sure it's in the tens of thousands of dollars at least, and you know the salaries aren't that big in the initial part. PRs later, and we can talk about that. So it, it makes sense to oversell the qualification.
2: It's unbelievably cruel, and but there's also this thing happening uh, that you see it in journalism, but it's reflected right through, and that is a philosophical shift. Uh, whereas uh, uh, the we grew up. With the view that there was a world out there that was objective and real, um, to put it in journalistic terms, there's news, there's stuff happening, and um, your job as a human being is to try and understand the world around you. Your job as a journalist to go there and report what's happening, and that means you know understanding what's happening and reporting it, and you do so in a way that is stri- striving towards objectivity. Mm of the story. Where the
0: chips fall.
2: You wear the chips fall wherever, wherever the story takes you. But now from day one, from kindergarten, we are, uh, the, the generations are being taught activism. So there's now no there's no longer uh, an objective world Um, there's views of the world. There's good views and bad views of the world, and I have a good view of the world. He clearly has a bad view of the world (laughs) because he disagrees with me. Mm. How can it possibly
0: be good? It's so easy for them. And that's where narratives come.
2: That's right. They have a narrative. I'm telling the right narrative. You've got the wrong narrative. And so the journalists now are activists and they're campaigning. And the funny thing is the newspapers will tell you this. You know, the newspapers took on the job of campaigning to get everyone vaccinated, mm. you know, not reporting
3: it, but that was their goal. Well, let's remember the 2019 campaign, which, again, I pushed back against, and I'll give credit to MediaWorks on this occasion because there was there was no pushback against me then, uh, but every news media major news media company in New Zealand was uh, on the whole climate change bandwagon. Yes. Mm. And this was led by, I think, the BBC and Time and CNN. How disgusting is that? So everybody uh, joined up with this worldwide reportage of, for a whole week on yeah. on climate change matters and that this is happening and the world is going to, going to hell in a handbasket because of... Uh, uh, the fact that we drive way too many Ford Rangers, yeah. uh, and and our why sheep, pick part, on me? Our sheep, <laughs> I our just, sheep got <laughs> He's got, yeah. just got a yeah. Ford Ranger. Leave yeah. my Volvo out of it. I've just got a Ford Ranger,
2: and you're attacking me. Yeah.
3: But I, I made a point that week of being de- deliberately contrarian, and I don't know where that particular streak in me comes from. But uh, I thought, well, there's a few blokes that i I'd, I'd heard about and read called. Uh, Richard linson uh, William happer uh, Willie soon these are guys highly qualified yeah. phds in, uh, in 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 physics and knew about the climate they they were real climate scientists in my opinion and they were disbunking the theory of course uh, they were uh, criticised because they were taking money from the oil industry. It's so Don't, easy, that, isn't it? Yeah, we, I yeah, was going to say, yeah, yeah. it's so easy to come up with a oh, yeah, big
2: oil, Peter yeah. Williams, <laughs>
3: big oil. You know, he's funded by End big of oil. Argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't but, listen to the facts. Yeah. But but you listen to Willie Soon, uh, you listen to William Happer, listen to Richard Linson, uh, and listen to Bjorn Lomberg, who actually, I think, believes in man-made climate change, but he says no matter what the world does, it's going to make no difference what's horrible. We can't stop it. Uh, because we can spend trillions of dollars, and we will not stop the warming of the planet. But the warming is not going to be that particularly um, uh, particularly uh, tragic anyway, but because people and will not die of climate change, as we keep on being told that they will. And that tragedy of what you're saying in um, the news media
2: of speaking out of turn yep, and yep. compromise—that is magnified a hundredfold in our universities and polytechnics mm. so if you're an academic if you don't toe the party line you will not get it you'll not get a job mm. you'll not get advanced you will not be able to shift you will not get your where, papers published. Where are principles, though? Where have principles Well, you see, this is gone. part of the philosophical... Surely you'd say,
0: screw you. You're not going to do that now, to this me. is part,
2: This is part of the philosophical shift, you know, and and the philosophical shift of, oh, well, you know, that's just your view. This is just identity politics. That's your view. You're saying, hang on, no, I'm trying to well, understand.
0: Well, it's, it's like Pete. I mean, he could. He, he You got out. You just weren't prepared to take it. Yeah, no, well, that, they, 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 Where they, are these people? Well, that's why the uh, people, that
2: Peter quoted, who uh, climate change is quite um, affects me quite deeply because I, I, at fifteen, became a rabid environmentalist, and like you, that's an interview over. Like, well, no, but like yeah. you do when you're young and idealistic. You know, when you're young and idealistic, you are looking for yeah, a cause, and I think that, that is abused. Mm-hmm. And it is abused by people who are wanting to advance themselves or advance their political discourse or their narrative. And I naively believed uh, at 15 that they were telling me the truth mm. and that I needed to be an activist. That's why I'm so hot on it. And I dedicated 10 years of my life. Uh, and, 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 and looking back on it, it was like a cult um and and um, so I, I am hot on it. And it's this idea of a narrative. It's an idea that there's not a real world out there. there.'s not a, there's an idea that these, these people have to be shut down because they're wrong. And um, the the climate change uh, scientists that uh, Peter refers to, they're either all retired and emeritus professors right. who can't lose their tenure, or they are so distinguished that they can't be touched. Now, um, there's only a few of those?: Yes, and there's no young ones, right? And that's why the, the, ultimately they will win, because uh, they have killed off the opposition. It's the same with almost uh, well, can you imagine being a New Zealand academic and says, "Hang on, uh, this treaty doesn't mean partnership." You might be a law professor. You might be a law student saying, do you think that you could get a job Mm. in New Zealand trying to make that point, even though it is manifestly true? Um, Or can you imagine getting a job if you just put your hand up and said, look, colonialism, yeah, on balance, I think it was quite
3: good for Māori. Yeah, as Paul Goldsmith found out to his cost politically yes. when he said what I thought was a perfectly reasonable thing. What about another younger guy in the medical profession by the name of Simon Thornley? Absolutely. Re- remember Simon Thornley? I do. COVID Plan B? Yes. Epidemiologist, highly qualified, medically trained, postgrad in epidemiology. More qualified
2: than most
3: people that were commenting in the New Zealand media as experts. That's right. So he makes some comments saying. Lockdowns are basically a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Let's not go that way. So he came up with the COVID plan B. What has happened to Simon Thornley now? Disappeared. Disappeared. And apparently has been shut down so badly. Uh, I know of a, a documentary circulating uh, about that time in our, in our lives. The documentary is towards the end of its uh, its production and is not far away from being released. Uh, Thornley was interviewed for the program uh, After he spoke to his lawyer His lawyer advised him That that interview should not be shown wow. So I mean that's, that's how much People like Thornley Who should mm. contribute to academic Discussion on this hugely Important topic They should be allowed to have their say And have an opinion He's been there's, shut out of it mm.
0: Gone. There's that But um, maybe someone could help me out here why, why does it go to the level Of wanting to destroy the person I mean. Well, I think
2: uh, it's like this.
0: Why is this no, a, such exactly a shock reaction? Shock I, troops.
2: I know exactly what it is. It's like they're holding a dam, right? Right. And you get one leak, right? And the dam will fall. The narrative will fall. So they know that that could happen. So it's Ye- willful. Willful. Also, it's a signal. See what we did to that guy?
0: Mm. That's you. You don't want to be like him? Nope. And
2: it becomes a story. And if you look at, um, this is a a long history in uh, pharmaceutical industry and the medical industry in America going right back. We're very eminent, you know, there's a debate about AIDS and what was the best treatment. And a very famous, I don't know, epidemiologist, virologist, Peter Duesberg, I hope I've got his name right. And I remember him questioning the... um, Narrative for the story of AIDS, and he was utterly destroyed, utterly mm-hmm. and completely destroyed by Fauci. He got no funding, no students, nothing, and he, he, he was finished. Um, and again, that sent a message to anyone that would question the wisdom of the central government's agency's views and, of course, the largesse of money. Um, even in the, I was at university, you know, getting grants in the early, late 80s, early 90s, and, I mean, you, if you wanted to get a grant from the government, you had to somehow wrap up climate change in it. No matter Even
3: back then? Yes. No matter and, what you're doing, And even
2: right. back then it started the treaty. So, so um, I'm studying the snail, and it'll be the ecology of the snail, and it'll be, we'll find out this and that, and it'll, and, and it'll be very important to our better understanding of climate change in New Zealand. And you needed that word in there. Or uh, this would be very important to our better understanding of the treaty and its implications for resource <laughs> management in New Zealand. Um, and, did and you write those?
3: I did. Um, you took the money, Rodney? That's not money. Yeah.
2: Well, That's I was naive. Right? Naive. I was. I was extremely naive because back then, too, I, I was starting to get awake to the environmental movement. And um, realising that it had nothing
3: to do with the issue at hand. Did you have a, a Patrick Moore moment, did you? You know Patrick yes. Moore, one of the founders of Greenpeace? Yes. He, mm. he pretty much had the same sort of road to Damascus experience yes. as you appear to have Yes, had. and it was yeah.
2: absolutely gut-wrenching. Because I remember going to my professors and I had this... I had this idea that maybe here we could use private property and it would give a better outcome, and it was just an anathema. And I sat with my senior colleagues, and I remember this to this day, them grabbing hold of the treaty issues, which was completely new, like what's the treaty got to do with water management, and saying they could use that to stop the government's plans state-owned enterprises Mm -hmm. and so it was this willful weaponization by uh, professors to use the treaty as an argument and Maori they were to be used to win a political argument and um, I thought we were there trying to figure out what was best for New Zealand.
1: So what do you think are some genuine solutions? Because when we... So we we visited the Netherlands recently, me and Jacob, and... What's happening in the Netherlands is the government are forcing farmers to sell their land, like I call it stealing because I think it is stealing, they don't want to move off their land they've been there their whole lives. The government's forcing them off their land because of climate change so then they're going to build most of that out in houses which is not better for that land obviously and then they're importing the Netherlands, are the th- I think it's the third largest exporter of goods from Brazil. Brazil's cutting down their rainforest so they're going to export on a higher level from Brazil who are cutting down the rainforest and get rid of their amazing farmland all in the name of climate change so the climate agenda that they're trying to implement is ridiculous but what are some other solutions sure. that would be genuinely beneficial
2: well I spent you know 30 years um not full time but a lot of time uh studying climate change and having all the arguments and I realized that's a fool's errand because it's, they're not interested in the argument. They're not actually interested in climate change. And when I say that, I'm meaning the people that are pushing these agendas. And it is an agenda. What are they interested in? Power. Tyrannical power. These are people that believe that they are smart and clever, and they're all around us. You know, you, your bespeckled university professor, uh, he, he can think that uh, he's nice, benign guy writing away, here, just doing his papers, but... He believes his views should be running New Zealand because he's an intellectual. It's that Plato thing. It's that philosopher king, and so there are amongst us people that want to rule over you, and they're politicians and they're bureaucrats, and they go into these they go into these fields. Um, it's a genetic thing, I think. Whereas I, you know, I just want to try and be a good person and contribute to the world. I know plenty of people who think that the way to contribute to the world is to boss other people around, mm-hmm. and um, they have that totalitarian impulse and so um, every time they see two ways of moving they'll always tend towards the totalitarian way rather than the one letting the people choose and so my my view now after having wasted my career is to realize what's going on the climate change agenda is to destroy farming and what they want is corporate and state farming. And corporate farming now means state farming mm. because you might have a corporation in name, but it'll be so beholden to the state that it's really run by the state. And there's nothing more there's nothing more inimical to uh, a government wanting to direct how we behave than a farmer and a mm. farmer's family. Because and they're a farm- too... too- Independent. Free thinking or independent. independent. They're independent and they know what to do. So you take them out. Take them and out. And then you can rule the game. Yes. Do you do you, you take that? out... Just let me... Sorry, Shijan. I didn't mean to interrupt. Take out families. Right. Take out farming families. Take out men. Um, and... Who does that leave? It, well, it leaves a scared and atomised population... Comply. ...who are reliant on government... And um, it's amazing. And, I mean, just that fear. And, you see, the, the, let's put aside whether the COVID response was right or wrong. I've never seen a government, and it happened all around the world, where you actually ruled by fear. Mm.
3: Well, Matt Hancock has admitted as yeah. much yes. in his WhatsApp mm. message. He used yes. the very word F-E-A-R. Yeah. Now, Seymour, uh, as the leader of the ACT Party, asked Hipkins... That question in the Parliament just last week, at question time, Hipkins said, I didn't see any fear. Uh, now, <laughs> they were stoking it, well, and so was David well, he Seymour. Was, he was the yeah, man, wasn't yeah, he? He but was But Seymour asked the question, so do we take our parliamentarians at their word with what they say in the House at question time? And I looked at that question, I looked at the answer, and... I raised an eyebrow in, with the deepest of cynicism, and I think I have every every cause to. No, really,
1: I, I uh, do want um, to ask a further question though on on the climate change thing, right? Because you've got, you've got two separate concepts here. You've got climate change as environmentalism and then you've got real environmentalism, Is in what can actually make a real impact to our environment that we're living in right now, such as cleaning up the seas, that type of thing like real actionable change. And I feel like a lot of environmentalists have gone towards climate change because it's such an easy topic to sit there and talk about while you're having a latte. You know, you don't actually have to be out there doing no, anything. That's,
2: that's, that, 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 of course, that just sort of either in on it or a useful idiot. What, and,
3: what kind you know, of latte, though? Yeah. <laughs> Was it but a dirty to, 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 one. Yeah, to, yeah. To, answer
2: your, <laughs> to answer your question about what we do, I think, and including the environment, is that the first thing we do is we look to ourselves. It's that Jordan Peterson line of cleaning up your bedroom. Mm. You know, the best thing you can get a young person to do to help with the environment is to tidy up the garage, tidy up their room and start on their garden, then they can start on the street. So it's actually looking to yourself, it's looking to your family and building up a, a, a good family and your friends with good values and a healthy outlook and, uh, and respect. And if you respect yourself, you'll look after the environment and you'll only be looking after your little bit, you know. But everyone looks after well, their little up. bit, it adds up. Mm. And then it's about building community because I don't think we can look to the top to rescue us. I think we have to, and this is why I'm so excited about RCR, because I think we have to look deep within ourselves. We have to be better people. We have to learn to look after ourselves better. We have to learn to look after each other better. And out of that we'll become a confidence and we can overcome the fear because, you know, this, the climate change is a fear thing. And you think of the darkest days of World War II the Winston Churchill and the leaders of the free countries, they didn't instill fear. They instilled hope. Hope, hope mm. exactly. And we will overcome. But nowadays, our governments, in a time of peace, instill fear. That's what we've got to
0: overcome. Uh, I, I want to get on to politics because this is election year. We're starting up now. Of course, we're going to be interested in election year. And uh, I don't know about folks you talk with, but in my, my limited group, a lot more limited than it used to be. Yeah, I've got two. We, <laughs> we struggle to even think of someone to vote for. I've never been in that situation before. I always used to buy into, well, you know, you can't complain if you don't vote. It's your duty to vote. Yeah, and, I know.
3: But, but the question... What do you do when you don't have an option? The question you're asking at the moment is, when you look back on our recent political leaders, and I'll go back in my lifetime to when I was first aware of a Prime Minister, who, that was Keith Holyoke in mm. the early 1960s. I'm thinking, who was the last Prime Minister that I really liked and respected? In fact, of all the Prime Ministers that there have been in my lifetime, who have I liked and respected and thought was a good leader of people? Mm. Holyoke, because, well, he was the first one and he was always you know solid and New Zealand was doing pretty well economically um, Kirk because it was time for a change i thought yes that is that 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 makes sense it's the world is changing i was uh, i was realizing that because i was uh, what 18 when he was elected um, Muldoon i could never respect Muldoon because he was just a bully longy longy really inspired me because mm. i just thought longy was he was a fantastic individual. Uh, mm. He was larger than life. In fact, he was larger than most of us, wasn't he? Until he <laughs> had himself shrunk, and, um, and he had this complete uh, red grooming. Funny. He was very funny. He's the you know, funniest thing on TV. Yeah, and and I I don't know whether or not he was a great prime minister, but he was he was a dominant personality mm. in New Zealand, and then we just. Uh, um you know jim the Bonter. 90s jim well poor i mean jim was a bit blah really wasn't he uh, jenny shipley the less said the better helen clark i think in the end grudgingly i look back and think yes she was a strong leader she knew what she stood for and she would put down a lot of the nonsense that's going on in this country today i think but key, key on, on reflection has been a It was a massive disappointment, mm. massive disappointment. And then, well, since 2017, frankly, the less said the better. So who have been the, the prime ministers, uh, the people that I've respected in my lifetime? Probably two, probably Holyoke and Longy and Kirk, because it was it was all different so, at the time. So what yeah. do we do? What do we do now? I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Well, I know who I'm voting for. Yeah. Well, because I, it's the only person I can trust, and that's on. my dad. <laughs> well, so that's an uh, easy vote uh, on my were, behalf. Were you, were you
0: surprised at how he did in that poll?
1: Uh, yes and no. I was surprised they published him in the poll. <laughs> I'm not surprised well, how, how he did well. How did well. his
3: name get yeah. on the ballot? How did yeah. his name get... No, so we, people, I think they've just, asked,
1: they've just asked people, people who do up. you think is a preferred PM? So that's an
3: organic well, An organic response. amount
1: of 3.9% so, said Leighton so
3: So 1,000 so people... Uh, Said uh, of of a thousand people, thirty-nine people said Leighton Baker. Hmm. They rang his church. (laughs) (laughs) I
1: don't think so. So His original one was pretty friendly. How close does
0: that get you then to a five? (laughs) But very potentially. Because all you got to do, all you
2: got to do, and I mean Leighton would have my vote. Um, I've become. I don't care. Labor, National, to me. They're going to mess around at the edges and not deal. Are they all on
0: the same side? They're on the
2: same side. They're on the same side through our darkest days of my lifetime. Uh, when they locked us all down, they're all on the same side. Uh, one thing to agree,
0: uh, but to go and lockstep over everything, that was to me. Can you um, ex- you've you got the background. You know how it works back in the back rooms. Can you explain that? Is that an unprecedented thing? Totally Unprecedented. You can imagine people agreeing in a in
2: a sort of like a wartime emergency or agreeing to a, a framework, right? And I could imagine that when there's... Obviously, I've never experienced anything like that as a politician, so it's unknown territory to me. But the idea that an opposition leader or opposition MPs wouldn't come down to meet people angry with the government to me is just unbelievable because... You're looking for, like, every vote that you can get. And you don't have to agree. I've met with Maori protest, I've met with every protester that ever turned up to Parliament. No, not because um, I your agree. Duty, isn't it? I agree. Absolutely. Your duty. You're a House of Representatives. You're in a very, very privileged position. Uh, these people don't have your access, and they've come to Parliament to express a view and you're duty-bound to in go and numbers. listen to it. And it wouldn't matter if it was one, I'd go down and talk to them. Because we're in New Zealand. It's the size of a little city in anywhere in the world. But the thing I like about, uh, Shan, I've said I'm a single-issue single voter this election. First time in my life. I'm going to vote for the party that promises a parliamentary inquiry into the vaccine engine. And the party that does that, they got my vote. But Leighton's got my vote because he turned up to the protest and was a leader there. Hmm. And he stood firm. And so I feel that there
0: is a man of principle. And that was one of the things mm. that, that, that was used to to kind of give them an out, not to confront. You'd have no leader. Mm. You know, you're all disparate sort of wackos who, who, who can't sort out who the boss is. And they used that as a pretext for not communicating. Mm. I mean, you were there. Were, I mean, I know there were a few politicians sort of walking up and down the, the lanes, let's say. Kind of keeping a low profile. Did you get to talk to any of them during during that time?
1: No, Were you, no, not not one of them. Not one of them actually came to properly engage. And I mean, Winnie runs in, gets a photo op, runs away. <laughs> you know, but, but it wasn't was a, Seymour
3: himself? Around the protest, is I know, I
1: know. From from what I know about what happened with he, Seymour, he at least is, went across the road, didn't he? Well, to the backbencher, f- from what I heard, he was sitting in a cafe somewhere, or he might have been yeah, sitting in yeah. the backbencher, hiding away in a corner. And protesters found him and confronted him. And then he said he met with protesters. But was that a meeting or was it <laughs> well, a confrontation? And, and the other thing is, maybe
3: you guys haven't heard this before. <laughs> yeah. I, I compared an event for the Free Speech Union in Dunedin last year. And Michael Woodhouse was on the panel. Michael Woodhouse maintains that he was out and about talking to the protesters. Now, no public record of that.
1: No, Um, he definitely didn't get on a mic and say anything. They definitely didn't come down the steps and say anything.
2: uh, It's very interesting what you say about no leaders because that's very true um, at the protest. And that was, to my mind, unprecedented of a protest to parliament. Mm because you normally expect, you know, the farmers to organise and they have a person that's organised it and they have a delegation and they go off and they can go and see the minister's office. This thing was spontaneous. Mm. It was from the ground up. It was literally people seeing the convoy and saying, I'm off to Wellington and joining in. And it was that spontaneity that made it, it was like our Woodstock moment. You know, it was just <laughs> amazing. And the fact no one would presume to speak on behalf of the people that were there mm. because every person there had their own story. And, again, that was what was so powerful about it. And I was there. I'd never presumed to
0: speak on, on behalf of anyone there because it wasn't organised. It, was it was. But that doesn't but, stop someone standing up and saying, okay, this is incredible. I see you all here, I understand the issues, I hear you, mm. I'm here. A
1: politician could be I can't yeah. do anything Absolutely. more than that. It would have been enough. I reckon they would have gone home, to be honest. If, if Jacinda had come down those steps, if she had come down those steps and she had said, look... I hear what you're saying. I understand what I've put you through over the last few few months or over the last year has been traumatic. I understand that there are people that have personal stories. But what you have to understand is I'm trying to do this for the greater good of our country. I'm trying to do this for this reason, this reason, this reason. Please understand that as soon as I possibly can, I will drop the mandates because I understand. Yeah. If she had done that, I think most of them would have gone home, so to be honest. So that's about a minute? Yeah, one minute, one if, minute.
2: If, if Chris Luxon had come down and spoken to Oof. that group, he'd be on his way to being Prime Minister yeah. right now.
1: Absolutely. So he would
2: be a different... So, so they don't know how to call no. it, even.
0: They, they, I, don't think, I don't think they... Can you run a country when you don't even understand that? I, I don't think they began
2: to understand. I didn't understand what was going on and i watched that protest through chantal and i was there and then i got the opportunity to go just for a day and it was the most amazing experience of my life outside of you know personal family things that i have ever experienced by an order of magnitude and i felt it the moment i walked in
0: Hmm. Electric.
2: Electric. It was warm. It was engaged, and it made me realise what New Zealand had lost, yeah. because there were people who were smiling, there were people who were happy, there were people that were hugging. There were. I'm not a hugger, and <laughs> I ended up loving getting hugs because. We had become so fearful of each other. You know, you'd walk you'd go and do your shopping in the supermarket all masked up and everyone scared and they'd all be like this around you. And suddenly you were with people and there was this warmth. And it just felt and and, and and clever people who could sing and dance and build toilets and construct stuff. And you saw that I've never seen anything like that. And of course the other thing about the protests there is there were people there that had lost everything.
0: There's no sympathy. Well, there is. But amongst a lot of people, there's
2: no sympathy for that. No. And people who had lost their health through the vaccines. And so you were there and you realised these people had... You know, normally you get a protest and it rains. Everyone rushes home. (laughs) Right? Because it's not serious, really. It's raining. You know, you 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 get Greenpeace and and it rains. They're gone. These protests... It poured. They had sprinklers on them. They had abuse hurled at them. They were there. I have, ne- and then the people that were there were tradespeople. They were farmers. They were business people. They kicked they, in. They could do stuff. They mm. could feed themselves. They could house themselves. They could make sanitary <laughs> arrangements. It was. It was amazing. These, these are people. Never, now, how, never how protested in you, their life could before. How
0: you turn your back on, on people mm. like that? I, I still can't get to the bottom of that. No, I, I mean, not,
2: even yeah. if you disagree with everything they said or
0: stood for. Yeah, they must have known in their hearts that this was wrong. I think the politicians so. they must I, so.
2: have. Oh, you- I
1: don't know though i've spoken to a few people, and the whole rhetoric of January the sixth and insurrection you know with those dangerous That's people that were just holding play, flags, no, I know, but the mm. you know those dangerous people yes. just holding flags, taking photos through a building, whatever, so they have tried to they genuinely thought that that the protesters were going to try and take the building at some stage. And so that was the rhetoric that was going all throughout Parliament. So people genuinely were scared because they had no idea but again, that what was, deliberate. was actually happening. Exactly. But and they were told that they were not allowed to go down yeah. by their party. So yeah. none of them came down. But but I remember after that first day of vi- violence, you know, when the people were sitting down, backs to the police, just being put in headlocks, dragged out, you know, old ladies had their collarbones broken and all of that. because um, I mean, my mum and dad and even my um, fiance Jake, they, they weren't up there at that stage. I wasn't even gonna go to because I thought it would just end in Picton. I didn't know what was happening. Huh. I got the ferry across one day, and then I you know, ended up staying but I was there. I was definitely there. You all know
0: that. <laughs> that was when the ferry used to work. <laughs> oh,
1: back in the good old days. Lovely sunny day, too. But I, I remember we got to the end of that day, and you guys would have known. I mean, that was traumatic for, I think, thousands of us that, that kind of experienced it, that saw it the whole lot. And I rung Mum and Dad, and I said because I felt like, A, there was a lack of leadership, but B, there were a lack of any authority figures. So And by that i mean people that um someone that everyone recognized someone that was that spoke a lot of sense because if they recognized them there were some people that just weren't saying much of anything you know or taking people down all these tracks that were really unhelpful so i I remember ringing dad and just saying like they need you here like you need to come like i need you here but they need you here more Mm. people just needed someone level that could you know try and, like, just keep people calm and then talk to, like, the police and try and figure out, like, what they could actually do to help everybody because it was an eclectic bunch of brilliant human beings.
2: The um, two things, too. Um, I was always worried that they couldn't demonstrate that the vaccine was safe, but I didn't believe that people would be injured by it. I just couldn't get that into my head. Mm. And when I went to the protest, it was my great privilege and great sadness to meet people who were so badly injured by that vaccine, acknowledged, acknowledged by their doctors and the medical profession as badly injured. This isn't, this isn't stuff in their heads. And to see that level of suffering, I mean. For me, the um, lockdowns were an inconvenience and a frustration and an economic disaster. But to see New Zealanders who had done what they told, were told by people they trusted, and put their faith in the so-called science and the medical fraternity, and to see them, their bodies destroyed, and their lives destroyed, and then to struggle to Parliament and to have no one. This, isn't, this wasn't a protest about what's right and what's wrong, what the government should do or shouldn't do. This was a protest about people that had done exactly what they had been told to do. They had been told, do this, or you'll lose your job. And they have suffered catastrophic, lifelong injury. And they come to Parliament, and not one person comes to visit them. Now, here's the scary thing. The government admits that, yes, there are people injured, by the vaccine, but, and yes, there are people who died because of the vaccine. All we're arguing about is, say, the numbers, and I don't know the true number. So they admit that. Well, these injured people and the families and loved ones of these people who died were there that day. The people that made that decision... To inflict that on them for the good of society in their their eyes wouldn't even meet them. That is just that's that's not that's not um, or I could go down there and get some votes or I better go down and listen to these point of view. This is something very deeply, fundamentally, inhuman. Mm.
1: I went. I went back to another protest. I think it was maybe a month afterwards, after Wellington. They had a protest for the jab injured specifically, and they presented a yes. a big petition to one of the national guys. Can't remember his name. Presented a petition to the one of the national guys. You had um, people there in wheelchairs, people that were severely debilitated. that would be your
2: Michael Woodhouse moment.
1: Yeah, mm. yeah. And um, what what's happened up, What's happened from it?
0: Mm. I haven't heard.
2: Anything.
1: I've heard absolutely nothing.
0: We're heading probably towards the end of this chat now. Mm. So now we've kicked off RCR, Reality Check Radio. Um, we're all going to be doing stuff here, and there'll be others as well. So let's just go around the table. Rodney, you're on the other side, 180 degree. <laughs> we, we get a lot of 180 degree these days, don't we? Mainly projection. <laughs> um, but, okay, so I think you've mentioned that there's there's been a, a lost art of conversation and, and, and debate. So where are you going to be coming from and what you talk about, the people you talk to? uh, No, I think it's, I hope to get,
2: interact with the audience and I'd love to be audience driven. That is to say what the audience is interested in uh, hearing, what they're interested in discussing, who they're interested in having on the show. So to me... I, I would regard myself in that very privileged position of um, speaking on behalf of that audience and doing all, what that audience can't do, which is get interesting people and ask them questions and to set up a, a, a sort of um, interesting two-way conversation. And it's not about me being right or me knowing all the answers, but to me, it conversation went earlier about putting the questions that we all have and to try and learn and to grow and to try and understand one another. You know, like, um, what's wrong with that? Why why can't we try and understand people who disagree with us? Because they might be right. And um, we probably will find when we get talking to someone that we both learn a bit. You know what I mean? That's what I see doing, but I I think that we have to be very respectful of our audience and... um, do what they want to hear, because that's the great gap in New Zealand where over and over our government and our media and our companies and our banks and our airline are all telling us what we've got to think, how we've got to feel, how we have to... Th- I'm sick of that. I am so sick of getting on the airplane to fly to Christchurch and being told by Air New Zealand what to think and how to feel about things. I just want to see... I just want a seat, okay. Is
1: it their new tagline? <laughs> no, In New Zealand, I just want a seat. That's
0: my new tagline. And I know already how to put a seatbelt on. Yeah, there you go. Oh, good. you can work that one out. Chantelle.
1: Oh, yes, sorry. So,
0: Delayed well,
1: reaction. Same, same. Is that going to be my show, just very slow?
0: No, no, no. Um, no. Well, <laughs> same question, really, same question. Um, I mean, you've had experiences that, well, I haven't had. Um, you've been close up to a lot of stuff. Uh, albeit recently, and we're not seeking to be a one-issue kind of station. We're aware of that. But where where will you be going? Who will you be talking to? to What do you want to find out? What do you want to help people
1: I think I want to focus on um, what the media isn't talking about. And that's such a range of topics, and I mean, this is why we, we went to Ukraine. This is why we wanted to, we went to the Netherlands and met with the Netherlands farmers. It's why we've gone and spoken to different groups, like in the UK. And we went we went I- as many places as we could in a short time frame as possible. And yeah, I just really want to understand because I know firsthand. And I think the one thing I learned at Parliament was that what the media say versus what you're what you're told are two completely different things. And, and so, the back. yeah, yeah, and as up in oh. Napier for three weeks with the same the same thing. That'll right? be a
0: story, won't it? Yeah, yeah,
1: it's been fascinating. And so we've got, I I think what I've I've learned this whole time is what aren't the media saying or at least what aren't our media saying? Because there's a lot of international stories that don't get covered here and I kind of want to drill into the why and who's involved and what does it mean for our country.
3: Cool. Pete? Well, I'm working on air during the daytime and mostly in the afternoons and it's going to be pretty cruisy because I intend to play quite a lot of music. Great music. Yeah. Who's it going to be programmed by, Paul? You. <laughs> and me, I'll offer a few <laughs> That's suggestions. That's how I know it's going to be good. <laughs> but, yeah. but in between uh, quite a few of those songs, I'm, I'm prone to have a bit of a rant about stuff.
2: Oh, we love your rants. <laughs> <laughs> some, and your, your, some of your rants have been epic.
3: Yeah, so I'm just going to offer a few thoughts on a few matters. And if, if people want to respond uh, to those rants, I will be inviting them to get in touch with me. Uh, There may be people who vehemently disagree with me. If they do, I'm more than happy to have a conversation with them as well, because there are so many things that need to be talked about openly. But like, for instance, as we talk today, what is the biggest story in britain what is the biggest story in britain as we speak right now it's not matt hancock matt hancock is last week's news the biggest story is gary lineker yes Mm. now gary lineker is a mere tv sports presenter okay once upon a time he was a really really good player but he's a tv sports presenter having been a tv sports presenter at times in my life uh let me say it's not a particularly important job okay it's not important Uh, But Gary Lineker has decided that he is important. So therefore, he's offering opinion on British government policy, which is completely and utterly outside the wheelhouse, I'm sure, of his £1.3 million a year contract. It shows one thing in Britain, and that's the power of football. Football seems to be way more important than any political party, and the the football party is probably the The most important party party in Britain. But... I read in the Daily Mail today
2: that it went from all the commentators walked out. Yeah, and the audience the the the
3: audience audience went up. Uh, uh, I was getting to to that. So, so match of the day is usually a (laughs) one-hour program, uh, which apparently has got. Uh, as somebody, as a columnist in the Telegraph or whatever, wrote uh, every now and then a bit of football is shown in between all the people talking about it. So they drop all the, the, the all the punditry, drop the front man, and just have twenty minutes of football action with no commentary, no commentary at all, because the fans identify the players and the teams, and it's written up on the screen anyway. And the audience is up by five hundred thousand. That's amazing.
2: poor.
0: Paul,
3: Paul, yes. You're so I'll main... be ranting about that sort yeah. of stuff. It's probably
0: AI <laughs> commentators
2: yeah. in the future. And, and I always feel with Peter that there's a man who's calmly and soberly read the news and read the That was a past sports. life. That with was a past the rage life. rage inside. But all the time, there's this, <laughs> and it's, we've, we've captured it, you know, that 50 years of experience. But, Paul, you're the main man here. You Well, are, yes and no. We, we look to you. Uh,
0: what do you want to be doing on the show? Good question. I'm curious. I've always been really curious. And I'm always interested to find things out. And I don't mind if I don't like the answer. I just want to find things out. Mm. So, And I think many people are curious. And I think we've lost a lot of curiosity. Mm. I don't think we've actually lost it. We've been scared to be curious because some questions are difficult. And uh, if you're a curious person, you'll ask them. Regardless, so I, you know, I'm obviously going to stay across what's happening, and I'm going to keep in touch with you guys as well and all our contributors, and I'm going to read the audience feedback, and we know already that there's going to be a beat load of it, right? Mm. And and I I will follow my own curiosity, but also the curiosity of others, and and. I don't know what it will be. I don't know. I mean, there are the main issues, mm. but there are also other things. I mean, I'm a great aviation fan, so oh, I'll, wow. I'll want to tell people. People are always interested in airlines. They fly. Mm. What, what, you know, what's the state of the art? There'll be a bit of that. Um, I, I love science, mm. physics. Mm. Um, I can't get enough of it. Virtual reality. You know, those sorts of things. So I reckon it'll go everywhere, but I'll make a commitment to this. It'll be bloody interesting. Yes.
2: Tell (laughs) me this um, for the audience. How will the audience interact with the hosts and get in touch with us?
0: In the early days, it's a work in progress. Um, we can...
1: <laughs> Make it challenging. Yeah. Uh, signal pigeons.
0: Yeah. Uh, yes, that's right. Will there, yeah. be, will there be an email address, Paul? <laughs> how long does it take for the pigeon to fly from there? <laughs> Um There is an email address, and um, I, I need to confirm that before we put that out, and that will be all the publicity and everything, but there will be an email address, and that will be the first point of contact, yeah. and I've lived through this scenario before on another setup, so that's how we started. There'll be a text service very quickly, so for when we do stuff in real time... And there will be a mix of pre-recorded and real-time, as there is with every broadcasting operation. You know, some people aren't available in real-time mm-hmm. to talk to, so we're going to have to pre-record it. And in the early days of, of rolling out RCR, because of the way we've put it together, we need to road test the supply chain of content. Okay. And we need to make sure it's bulletproof before we really go out and beat our chests.
2: And and So ultimate, think of
0: it as a beta... A beta, beta got it? Type of operation. Ultimately,
2: would people be able to ring?
0: Yes, they will. Great. We'll have, uh, once we're majority live, which won't take long, we're not Mm. talking about long here, folks. Once we're majority live. Given it's Monday. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but we all came to that decision, it was all (laughs) democratic and everything. No one stood over anybody. Um, Yeah, there will be phone calls and we will do talkback shows and we will have live call ins. We'll have live texts. Texts, by far, are the most popular these days, Mm. there's no question. Um, and they can fill up a lot of time, and some of them are genius. So yes. that'll be there. Yeah. Um, and, of course, with the technology that's out there, we can you know, cross to the other side of the world as if and sound like we're both in the same studio. So what we can do going forward is just incredible. And then, of course, we get into out of the audio-only space and we move into where Chantel is now uh, into, and it's an obvious thing, into the um, television. No, it's not quite television, but the video space mm. as well. Mm. And, you know, what you'll find is that the content that is produced, which is the gold, or hopefully will be the gold, will go out in that medium as well, probably as a social media, obviously, distributed content items. And the, the potential of that is just massive. Mm. It really is. It can dwarf the real-time listening Experience in terms of numbers so much, and then we'll be inter- You know, you'll be starting to see people. Wow, you'll, it'll it'll start to be TV, and I mean, we call it radio. It will sound like radio, and I think it's fair enough to say now with internet radio that is radio. Mm. It, you know, people don't know all oh, that sounds like it's coming through a terrestrial transmitter, Martha. Yes, <laughs> you know, there yes. is no and and with apps and streaming and Bluetooth and cars. It's easier to push that app button or yes. that that um, internet carplay,
3: the carplay button, yeah. yeah.
0: Than, you know, tuning the radio. Mm-hmm. It's it's the same thing, and I think people are there already. We've seen that already. So we're going to start off with some humility, and we're going to do what we can do. We've got some great talent, and we've got very receptive um, uh, you know pool of guests and potential yeah. guests out there. They they want to talk. Yeah. Well, your excitement uh, is
2: contagious. Well, Thank you. And your enthusiasm carries us all along.
0: Well, I know we can do it, you see, because oh, I've been there before, and I know we can we do can it. We can do
2: it. And tell me this. Do you think we'll have our
1: critics?
0: Oh, yeah. Really?
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm
1: anticipating none. <laughs> hey,
0: bring it on.
2: Bring it on. So what might we be criticised?
0: By well, by? I, the criticism I've seen so far, and I haven't been you know, too busy looking, because I kind of know what the negative stuff's going to say. But You've got to do better than that, folks. <laughs> Honestly, if you really want to bowl us over with, with your criticism, you need to go back to the drawing board. Some of it is just so facile and stupid. Um, but they're also criticising the audience, aren't they? Well, they are. They're presupposing it's a particular audience. Yeah. And I don't think you can do that. No. And we're not doing that. Don't criticise your customer. I mean, no, never. Never turn them away. Never tell them to beep off as soon as they come into your shop. That's, well, I hope that's we get That's not going to work. I <laughs> hope we get heaps because well, that will
2: generate an interest. If, eh? we, yeah. if we do
0: what is wanted, we will do well. Yes. But we'll find out, won't we? Mm-hmm. Well, let's take this baby for a ride. Hmm.
2: Well,
1: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you mean like Sorry. a bicycle? Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: well... Let's do that. So, I think this has been a great chat. I really do. I I just, you know, we've ranged over so many things, and um, I've got a lot to think about it from what you guys have been saying. And I I think, you know, I think we're we're calibrating it correctly for what we want to do, but we will see, and we're open to to anything. But I I think this has been a great chat. So, Mm. I want to thank you guys. Thank you, Paul. Thank you.